And they're off. Episode seven of Three Better Rule is a reality. Wasn't clear that it was going to be so even as recent as 15 minutes ago, but here it is. We're all around the batter's cage this morning. Tom Griscom, David Eichenthal, I'm Tom Lee. Good morning, guys. How are you? Good. Good morning, Tom and Tom. Good to see you. Love your green hat today, Mr. Lee. It's really looking this, good. Thank you, sir. This is a relic from my first spring training visit to the Orioles camp in Sarasota, Florida. It is, in fact, green all the way through. Mr. Grissom is not colorblind, but it was their St. Patrick's Day hat. Uh, that uh, is become something of a tradition uh, around the majors. And I thought, well, I've got plenty of orange and black Baltimore Orioles hats. I don't have a green one. And uh, now I do, celebrating St. Patrick's Day a little late um, this year. Uh, but that, uh, that's the theme of the show, a little late. And spring training is too. David Eichenthal, you have suddenly become the... Indiana Jones of the Major League Baseball season. You may yet unearth the lost treasure of the 2020 Major League Baseball season in the most appropriate town of all, Surprise, Arizona. How did? How is it that you make a visit and it becomes, as we read this week, maybe the place where the entire Major League Baseball season happens? Can they do that in Surprise? Well, well, you know, Tom, I've always tried to be a trendsetter, but uh, seriously, uh, this is an interesting proposal that's out there. And, I, and Tom, what you're talking about is the published reports suggesting that both the Players Union and Major League Baseball are now thinking about, well, can we play all of our games in Arizona? Uh, no fans in the stands, which which you'll recall we actually talked about a, a couple of uh, episodes ago. But the idea being that there are, I guess there are 10 minor league slash spring training stadia and uh, the stadium for the Diamondbacks in Phoenix that are all within about 50, mi- uh, 50 mile area. Uh, you know, the, the surprise stadium that I visited uh, uh, really just before baseball closed down is a beautiful facility. Camelback's a beautiful facility. Uh, I still haven't quite heard or figured out how they're going to do this safely and when they would do this. But, uh, you know, I think there are a lot of people who have economic interests, let alone folks like us who have fan interests in seeing some baseball this year. This may be the only way. Uh, I think there were some published reports also suggesting, well, let's play the World Series in Dodger Stadium. That may not be the best idea in the world, Mm -hmm. although I love seeing just about any baseball game in Dodger Stadium. But uh, not sure if you want to sort of plop down an event like the World Series, even in a December World Series in the middle of Los Angeles right now. Yeah. and, And David, to pick up on yours, let's continue telling fans you don't really have to show up. I mean, (laughs) I can only imagine if I'm in mountain time playing a bunch of baseball games and a country going back to work that what, how am I going to get people even to tune in and watch it? 
uh, I mean, we all know that part of what pumps up these players are fans in the stands. They talk about it. Uh, and, and how if you got that moment, you're waiting for that batter to come up and get the right pitch, and, and here it goes. I, I, when I read this, I said, yep, you could probably do a whole lot worse, but if you want to continue getting rid of fans, do this. Play so games Tom, where nobody can even actually turn it on and watch it because they're actually going back to work. So, Although Tom. We're, we're, yes. we're, we're watching reruns already. Uh, so, <laughs> Some of so, us are. <laughs> so, 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 you know. Uh, I don't. I watched the I watched the the rerun last night of the September 6, nineteen ninety five game between the Orioles and the Angels. Important to ESPN to broadcast an otherwise meaningless late September game between two teams that were ultimately going nowhere <laughs> because it was the game when Cal Ripken broke Lou Gehrig's consecutive game streak and. I was there in person that night, which is a whole podcast by itself. And I have to tell you, I cried watching the rerun. And we all know what's going to happen. He's going to break the record. I don't know that, however, a September 6, 1995 game between, I don't know, the Mariners and the Royals would have done that for me. And, and I can tell you that because I... That's the first baseball rerun I've watched in a while. It's It's got to be pretty special. And, Tom, I wonder if the dilemma, because of all these financial commitments, isn't such that fans might just drink up TV baseball, even if it sounds like uh, that, uh, that game, well, as an Orioles fan, we know the history of the baseball game played in silence. Uh, when the city of Baltimore was uh, in the midst of uh, terrible disturbances, riots uh, in in the streets uh, for a period of days, and the Orioles declared it was not safe for fans to come in the ballpark, but the major league schedule was such that the game had to be played, and they played the game in an empty baseball field. You, you could sure hear the bat on the ball, uh, but it was it was odd i'm not sure five months of that makes it any well better. that's right and by the way tom there is no crying in baseball but so i'm glad that you shared that that you did so tom hanks will probably come to you and say you need you need to understand tom there's no crying that's the point long as long as he's clean man that's good <laughs> if it was a game or two but a whole season and they're also to david to where you started this they're talking about playing seven inning double headers Every day. And I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, sometimes we, you know, anyway, it just was kind of interesting to be thinking about if it. You, but this if is you long bu- for if you long for baseball, by the way, if you long for baseball where the starting pitcher pitched the whole game. Well, that would be it. Or or you go back to maybe what the the, the Rays were pioneering a couple of years ago where you just everybody pitches just an inning. And right. I, I don't know. It's it's. Uh, well, if they pitch like just baseball. an inning, then we're in trouble with our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be interesting, wouldn't it? Yes, it would. <laughs> well, I 
it seems at, at once something that is a terrible idea and at the same time the only possible idea. Major League Baseball is, is going to want a season. Uh, there, this particular moment of the pandemic, we'll talk about it in a moment, this particular moment feels as though it is going to ebb in, in many of the early spots around the country. We don't know what the next spots are going to be, if there will be next spots. But it feels like this is where baseball almost has to at least try. And we'll find out if people will watch baseball on TV just to watch baseball on TV. I, I will say I'm a little surprised. This is not a golf podcast, but I'm a little surprised the PGA hasn't tried this first. It seems to me if there's a game that is conducive to people social distancing in wide open spaces with a hushed crowd. Nicholson over the putt. It's golf. Um, but but no, baseball might well, be the first to try it. Well, thank God we're not doing a golf podcast. Uh, and by the way, we can have a long right. we, by the way, we can have a long debate as to whether golf is actually a sport or a game. But uh, uh, but uh, but I mean, I think Tom, you're right. I think this isn't what a question of what's a good alternative, but what's the best of many not very good at all alternatives. Although the one thing that I was going to say uh, uh, is I had forgotten about the Orioles games in silence, but uh, when I was talking to somebody else about this earlier this week, I said, you know, baseball without fans in the stands, it wouldn't be very much different from most Mets seasons in September. So, uh, yeah, but you got it, David, and you, 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 you and Tom know this because of things that you've done over years. You got to really be smart enough to know that you know if you go this path that you're not doing more harm long term to the sport than just trying to get a few games in uh, because there's financial reasons. That's what concerns me. Are they really stepping back? I mean, we have a Scott Boris saying, "Oh yeah, we ought to do this." Well, yeah, because this is an agent looking to try to keep his you know uh, keep it keep his money flowing uh, with with players. So I, right. I, you just hope that they stop and say, ask people before you do this. I mean, it's great that they're all on a conference call, all the owners talking to each other. You'd say, why don't you go out and ask your fans? What do your fans think? Because I mean, that's the long, that's on, we know after that strike that happened, how long it took. And I'm not sure baseball ever came back from the last strike that they really had. And that was actually the point of the Ripken game. It, it the, the the part about that game, besides Kelly Ripken's period piece hair, that seemed so out of place watching it again last night, was the discussion of what you just raised, Tom. And that was, is this the thing that is going to bring baseball back? Remembering the, the players struck in 1994, the season did not complete. There was no World Series. There were no playoffs. And the 1995 season began with a lot of people rightly wondering, has, has baseball damaged its relationship with America such that people will pay attention to Major League Baseball? What we know since is, well, we're doing a podcast. Um, spring training tickets are 
almost impossible to come by at any major league park if you want to watch it. And the, the television rights, uh, the commercial aspect of the game, uh, frankly, has never been healthier. And part of what's going on here, make no mistake, is uh, the players, A, have limited lives. You know, if you're a baseball player, there is a time by which your skills ebb. It catches everybody, different times for everybody, but it catches everybody. And you don't know when your time is up. B, Major League Baseball players are compensated and participate under their operating agreement with the with the league based on service time and service time is uh, time during a baseball season when you are on a major league roster right now we do not have a baseball season you can be on a major league roster but there is no season so players rights uh, to become free agents to demand pay raises to move around are jeopardy in jeopardy and finally you have lots of players whose contracts are tied to incentive bonuses and performance bonuses. And if you're a smart agent, sometimes that's the deal, especially if you're not one of the very top, top stars who can demand the guaranteed money. Flipping it, baseball is the only one of the four major sports that tends to guarantee money throughout the life of a contract. And so the owners are paying money. Now, baseball players get paid during the season, uh, but those contracts uh, are going to uh, eventually uh, come due in some form, whether it's through litigation, whether it's through a reworked agreement with the union. So the owners are absolutely on the hook. Some teams are doing the right thing and they are floating the salaries and the paychecks of people who work in the stadiums and depend on the daily income of there being baseball. All of this is coming to a head. Baseball is just, frankly, another way of viewing the whole American economy. Uh, it's a different economy of scale, a lot more millionaires, but, uh, but also lots of people who 12 and $15 an hour job uh, depends on something happening in a public place. And so let me ask you, gentlemen, uh, are are you getting the sense that as uh, whether it's within the baseball community or whether it's it's within the the secular community, we are approaching a time and a place where we can begin to imagine people back in public spaces in the way that they were just six weeks ago? I think it's too soon. I mean, I think I think Tom, your point was right that that uh, we're going to see different peaks across the entire country based on based on what we know, and I think we know more and we know different things every every day, so it's it's hard to tell. But there are certainly going to be parts of this country that are still dealing with significant health impacts in into June. Uh, and then, and then the other piece of this, which we're, you know, I think as a, as a country, we're only sort of getting our arms around, but for the millions and millions of people who are now experiencing it, they're living it every day. 
you know, we we don't know just how bad the economic impact here is going to be. And it seems like it's going to be pretty bad. Um, and uh, that's going to have an impact on sort of what we could do and uh, as well. I don't know that, you know, I don't know how many people are going to be spending seventy five dollars on baseball games uh, if we're at a 20 percent or 25 percent unemployment rate for any period of time. Yeah, that's where I want to build off that last point David made. So I'm, I'm really worried now, an American, about I don't have enough money maybe to get from week to week. So I am sure if we do this this great baseball idea in Arizona, it's not going to be for free. You're going to have to pay a subscription fee to watch these games. And they haven't talked about that yet. It's just, oh, we're getting ready to do this. Well, let's talk about what it costs. I'm, my concern, Tom, to your question is this. It took us a long time, in my opinion, to get people to point to realize you really need to stay in place. You really need to, to just stop getting out. And we know there's still pockets of this country where that's not happening. Uh, if we now give you know, what I worry about are false positives, meaning it's okay, and then say, whoops, made a mistake, you got to go back. I think once you open that door again, people are going to be so clamoring to get out that we got to really be smart before we say, okay, we've passed this wave, and now we can go. I watch what's going on in China right now, where they have just, you know, they've opened the floodgate again. You got people everywhere. You see the pictures. You hope that they haven't done this so soon and that there's a rebound coming. And as tentative as some uh, states, municipalities, and certainly the federal government were to approach this idea of staying at home, it, it, is, it is now... At, to different degrees, at least by by governing bodies, by executives, it has become a matter of of uh, ch- not just choice, but a matter of the day. That uh, in now every state around the country, there is some form of stay at home order. Uh, Tennessee's, for example, has uh, thirty numbered exceptions. Many states in the South do. The New York Times ran a startling nationwide analysis of travel patterns uh, just a few days ago uh, using cell phone data. It wasn't clear how the Times had, had uh, found the cell phone data, except we know now, frankly, there are companies out there who buy this data from your cell phone provider, uh, not you personally, perhaps, but, but large groups of people, where we travel, when and for how, and the data was startling. I should say the data were startling. Thank you, David. The data were startling, and it showed almost along the Mason-Dixon line, Wisconsin, Michigan, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and everything northeast, the country is at a dead halt. And on the west coast, Seattle, Portland, much of California, a dead halt. Everywhere else, it is business as usual virtually. In all but a very few spots, you can see the travel patterns uh, on a very vivid map. A story by Rick Rojas and Lauren Leatherby that was dated April 2 
um, the official word has gotten out. It is not clear yet that all the people are yet embracing this word. Guys, I'm wondering about what that means beyond just when we can restart the baseball season. I'm wondering about whether, in fact, we have an issue where government is almost irrelevant in in many parts of the country as a muscular force to control the spread of this pandemic, David? Well, I mean, I think to the extent it's irrelevant, it's because it's rendered itself as such. So the mixed messages from the federal government, the failed messages from state governments, the inaction on the part of lots of local governments. I mean, I was talking to Tom Griskin about this before we got started. I don't think people in lots of the country are scared enough. I think they think that this is an inconvenience uh, at best. Uh, and that uh, what's happening in New York or what happened in in uh, Seattle and what's happening in New Orleans can't possibly affect them. And, and quite frankly, I don't think that's because people are stupid. I think that's because we've had failed leadership across large parts of the country in recognizing the severity of, of the public health risk. And and and, you know, if there's no messaging or inconsistent messaging, what do you want from members of the public? Um, if you you know, I think I think, you know, we don't just have 50 states uh, dealing with this individually. It's almost on a county by county basis in a lot of places because of the sort of flawed response on the part of many states. And it's it, it's it, it is. I mean, I, I don't mean to be partisan about this, but this is what happens when you put people in power presiding over government who don't believe in the role of government. Uh, and, you know, it is it is sort of the the, the federal government response to Katrina on steroids. Uh, and my fear is I hope everybody's right. I hope all of my friends and neighbors who I saw wandering around Whole Foods without a mask on and without gloves on yesterday and all the construction workers I saw without masks on and without social distancing are going to be healthy and that somehow they're not going to be affected by this. But I worry that that, you know, there there is this notion of of false uh, comfort out there and. And the impact on a very personal level is going to be extraordinary and extreme. I don't think people are scared enough. And I don't think the government has done in many parts of this country a good enough job in informing people what the risk really is. So, Tom Griscom, I want to ask you to, to respond to David in light of this fact. A week ago, the governor of Tennessee stood before the cameras and the press socially distanced as they were and the people of his state and and said that he was taking serious projections instituted or generated by the Institute for Health Medicine at the University of Washington. And a week ago, the that institute was projecting 3,400 deaths in the state of Tennessee 
uh, over the course of the summer with some wide variation allowed for, but that was the, the target in the center of the projections, 3,400 deaths. As of this morning, the Institute for Health Metrics has revamped their model and revamped their, their own estimates of what's going to be required in Tennessee and in fact the nation. And now uh, the University of Washington's Institute is projecting 617 COVID-19 deaths in the state of Tennessee by August 4 and has revised the national projection, which as recently as a week ago was uh, uh, around 95,000 deaths down to about 60,000. Now, it is also fair to say that as that number has dropped, the variance around it has grown dramatically. I've been watching these projections and, and now a projection of 60,000 COVID-19 deaths nationally uh, achieved by essentially June 1st, July 1st, has a, a range of possibility from as low as 40,000 to as high as 130,000. I, I asked you, Tom, how governments are to think their way, talk their way through this in light of, honestly, a lot of the science too and a lot of the mathematics and a lot of the modeling around this all appear to be a bit of a moving target. Now, Tom, that's a great question because you're you're right. I mean, what I mean, just I'm gonna add to your numbers you just laid out. Was it about a week ago where the federal government said 100,000 to 240,000 deaths? And and to to your I mean. I think we, you know, my, my answer would be this. We know there's going to be issues here. We know there's going to be people that die. Let's don't worry so much about the total number. Let's just be thinking about we've got a problem. We need to be doing things to deal with it. And guess what? Maybe that number is moving because some of the things that we are doing and we're being smarter about it. I want to build off David's point, too. That's David, right. and I that's, think that and that's, what the, that's what the researchers have said, by the way. Yeah, is there, and, and, there's, but, there does seem to be back, enough compliance. Yeah, but Tom, that goes back to actually sharing with people, we are seeing an impact because you're doing what you ought to be doing. See, we don't talk about it that way. I would love to see, David, to your point, other leaders in a community, business leaders, religious leaders, standing up and also not standing in a, at a podium, you know, as a group, but who are out, who have uh, pockets of people that they can talk to, that they influence, saying, let me share with you what we ought to be doing. It is it is almost like creating that echo chamber that we all know happens in politics. So who are those others who echo the voice, who have a position of leadership? And by that, I don't mean necessarily a, a public persona, but there's groups of people that they can impact, who, 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 they, who listen to what, what these people say. That to me, I think the big question to me is the institutions that we've relied on in the past are somewhat, you know, being challenged today. And they're being challenged not just within the last, you know, uh, year, two, three years, they've been challenged for some period of time. But what we haven't done <clears throat> is reach out to others who can lend a voice, who have a voice of credibility, who can impact and influence people to say, if they said it, then I, I, 
I'm in agreement. I'm going to go do this. I'm going to follow what they're saying. I think we have fallen to this that, well, government's got to do it all. And we're seeing, no, uh, and we're seeing groups of people who are questioned about government, right or wrong. So why don't we find other voices that we know people have confidence and trust in to echo this? I mean, I worry a lot now coming out of this, uh, what the respect's going to be for some people in the health field. Tom, to your to your, your point you just made, I mean, it's, it is real data. And we know that data can shift and move. And But how do you take the time to get past just the number to what it takes to get to the number? Well, let me let me suggest that there are another set of numbers that are very real and are probably the numbers I've been looking at uh, more than any other. So uh, and it does go to the fact that what's what's moving, what's moving the 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 projections is the effectiveness of doing something. And I think, Tom Griscom, to your point, making that case and making that case as a means of supporting doing more. Uh, is really important. Uh, you know, even before New York, and I, I, I've given a lot of credit to Governor Cuomo on this podcast and anywhere I can, I think he's been masterful in some of his communications around this. But really, the uh, officials who moved fastest and most effectively in response to this were in California. And you look at Governor Newsom and you look at some of the folks in the Bay Area. Last time I looked, Hamilton County, Tennessee, had 10 deaths related to COVID-19, and San Francisco, California, had eight. There are a lot of differences between Hamilton County, Tennessee, and San Francisco, California. But among those differences are, I think the last time I looked, San Francisco is about 30 times the density of Hamilton County, uh, and more than double the population. So I don't know, somebody could say it's anecdotal. Uh, the plural of anecdote is data. Uh, but somebody seems to have made some smart early decisions in, uh, in the Bay Area that literally saved lives. And I'm thrilled that Governor Lee has discovered that prayer alone will not fix this crisis. Uh, but it's a little too late. And it's a little too little as far as I'm concerned. And uh, if it's 600 people or 3,000 people or whatever the number is, uh, there's a big issue in terms of what preventable death looks like in a public health crisis like this. And uh, if it's preventable, the failure to prevent it really falls on the steps of government. Yeah, let me add two points, if I may, David. Number one, I agree with you about Governor Newsom. But I also want to make a point. He isn't spending half his time blaming somebody else on for a, a political or lack of a political decision. He's doing it. I mean, if you look at him, he's out there doing things. You're right about the numbers. You're right about what's happening. But he isn't spending the time uh, you know, out there trying to let me blame somebody else who didn't do something uh, rather than I'm going to do it. I mean, he makes environmentalists mad because he said, you know, you can't bring your recycling bags back in anymore. We're going to use plastic bags for a while. He's willing to step up and make those calls. And I think for a lot of the people that, that you know, are serving today at whatever level, whether it's a mayor, a governor, or a president, I mean, they, are, they have inherited or stepped into an issue that they probably never had thought about. And 
the fact that they get to where they need to be, I'll give them a credit for that. We didn't spend a lot of time worrying about why we didn't get here or decisions not made. There's time to do that. I just want to encourage everybody, let's get to where we need to be, get to the other side of this and, and tell people out there there's a reason we're doing the things we're doing. And it's because it's for the health of this country, and the health not just in lives, but also the health from an economic standpoint. All true. And I think we can I think we can agree that the human cost, whether it's 60,000 or 90,000 lives lost, or 71,234 lives lost. It's not irrelevant, I wouldn't say, but it's, it's it, the, the numbers are meaningful. They're certainly meaningful to the lives uh, that, that are able to continue. But one of the things that this time has done is it has called on all of us to put some trust in some things that we haven't frankly been putting trust in for a while. One of those things is math. Another of those things is um, science. And another, you can call it healthcare if you like, I, that's fine, I think that's appropriate. Um, one of those things honestly is whether we are still capable of responding to um, uh, a government that in many cases we have said as a people making lots of decisions in lots of elections over a long period of time we have said please stay out of our lives and and if you spend time on social media you can you can watch that back and forth uh, next time uh, we will uh, we will talk uh, medicine because we frankly have, uh, this odd moment going on. We're just seeing the contours of it beginning to develop. I want to see it develop a little bit more where the the, the White House briefing room is being used uh, to drive demand for a particular drug. It is amazing uh, right now, but we are we are asking our government to do some things that that honestly we haven't asked our government to do for a while. And that is challenging for political leaders. Um, and and I think we have seen in many cases um, uh, very reluctant political leaders who have always understood a different set of demands uh, driving their their politics and their governing styles. And so, Tom Griscom, I I I think your point is right. I uh, was there in 2006 when uh, it was clear that Harold Ford was no longer going to be a United States Senator on election night in Memphis, Tennessee. And he stood on the stage in an auditorium at the Peabody Hotel, essentially by himself, and and declared, um, uh, you know, admitted his defeat. And we associate victory and uh, coalition building and popular movements with large groups of people gathered around in public places. We want, want to see embodied what you described so well, that there are other voices and other people. Part of that has been the challenge of social distancing in this era, and that's important to note. But for everybody who's been on a Zoom call in the last seven days, and I would submit 
that's everybody in this podcast audience anyway, <laughs> you have perhaps embraced some sense of community in that process. And I think the challenge for our political leaders in this moment, especially if there does appear to be some impact collectively because of the collective actions of, of millions and millions of Americans, there especially right now needs to be a sense that the decisions political leaders are making are not their own. And I think we need to see that and hear that I know the temptation to executive action is powerful. And some executives, Governor Cuomo is one, Governor DeWine of Ohio is another, have done a terrific job of elevating themselves in this moment. They have appeared as if they were sort of born to this role of the solitary leader. But remember, we once thought Rudy Giuliani was born to that role too, in the wake of 9-11 in New York City. He did some excellent news conferences. He was born to that role, at least at that time. And and a, a political myth was born, America's mayor. So I think our challenge as we go forward is for governors, mayors, presidents. I have to say the president of the United States is probably doing more of this right now than anybody. And that is putting people around him, even if it's the pillow guy putting people around him to say, I'm with you. Uh, I, am, I am looking for the political leader, the mayor, the governor that does that next. Because I think that, to the brilliance of Tom Griscom's point, is the point at which you say, oh, look, a baseball season can be saved. Here's baseball with our political leaders. Oh, look, we can begin to bring frankly, an economy that, that our state depends on. We're a sales tax-based state now. That's a long ramble and a long setup for the next, uh, the next few days and the next podcast. But gentlemen, I think, I think the challenge in politics is always who can you bring along? And me, that's going to be the next test. And Tom, let me make one last point. For all those who want less government, why don't we check and find out how many of them are waiting for the check to come that the, that the government passed to give them some income? I, that, I think coalition. David Eichenthal, you get the last word. I think I, I would never argue against coalition building. And I think we have to keep our eyes firmly on the future, given the economic and continuing health threat uh, ahead. But I, I think that the best way that you preclude future failure is by being honest enough and clear eyed enough to look back and see what didn't work right. I, you know, there's a big push now for a 9-11 type commission around around this. I think it's absolutely essential because coalition building is great. Accountability is as well. And on that, guys, the just most you know, gut punching news last night we all got. Uh, we began our podcast last week with the uh, word that. John Prine had gone to the hospital last night. He passed away uh, of COVID-related illness. Um, John Prine spoke to really everybody in this country. Uh, he understood that people were broken. He understood that there was yet joy and light in spite of ourselves, to borrow one of his song titles. 
And uh, that is my wish for you guys and for all of us uh, right now that we uh, might examine our own brokenness uh, in this season and, uh, and, and come to a new understanding of who we are and who we can be as a people. Uh, David, happy Passover. Tom, happy Easter. And to all of you, uh, whatever your faith, whoever you are, thank you for listening. For David Eichenthal, Tom Griskin, Tom Lee, Three Batter Rule, we'll see you around the cage next time.